it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Another Thursdays with Mary Langston and uh, episodic appearances um, by Trey. And please try to hide your disappointment. Do your best to conceal your disappointment. Actually, I'm disappointed. In fact, I'm so disappointed I may not even go through with it. No, that's 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 my boss telling me that I am to go through with it, no matter what. Well, Mary Langston uh, will not be joining us this week. In her absence. Uh, to the extent that anything can fill that absence. But in her absence, we will revisit a few of your thought-provoking questions, and there are too many to choose from. But nonetheless, in the interest of time, we've chosen a few. Uh, You've asked about the inner workings of our judicial and legislative systems. You have asked about uh, what is left of my golf game. And there are moments when you just simply wanted an answer to my favorite question of all, which is why, uh, regardless of the topic, why? So let's get started. Hope you have a great week, and we'll be back with more questions next week. We'll start with a question from Alec. He writes, how and why are Democrats better able to unite as a caucus? And why couldn't Republicans unite behind even the Speaker of the House? So there's our first question. I wish I knew the answer to that question. I really do. I didn't know the answer when I was there. I don't know the answer now. There are, you know, to be fair, there are divisions within both parties. But Democrats have always, at least to me, been better at keeping their fights behind closed doors and projecting unity publicly, whereas Republicans act like friends behind closed doors and then fight with one another publicly. And I, I I, have thought about, I mean, I have maybe some guesses at it. I'll, I'll run through my guesses and then, you know, somebody else can tell me how wrong I am because they're really nothing more than guesses. I cannot figure it out. Democrats like to win, so they do things. They um, even kind of act unified when they're not. Um, because they want to win, and they there are things they want to have accomplished. I mean, they won, um, I guess, what, back in 2008, and they passed the Affordable Care Act. Um, they won recently, and they passed infrastructure. Uh, they won, and they tried to pass H.R. 1, which would have been a um, pretty significant piece of legislation in terms of federalizing elections. There are other major pieces of legislation that they have their eyes on when they when they win. Um, it just seems to me like there are some Republicans who like to win, not for what they can do legislatively, but so they can become famous. I don't know why that is. I mean, they're big personalities in both parties. It's not like Republicans have all the prima donnas and all the narcissists. They're, they exist in both parties. It just seems like Passing the Affordable Care Act, you can certainly argue, cost Democrats 
the House. It cost them the House. Obama only had the House for two years, which means he did not have the House for six years. But to them, it's worth it because they got something passed that um, certainly hasn't been undone yet, may never be undone. Mm -hmm. So their objective was a legislative accomplishment. Republicans, when they win, one difference, one difference I have noticed, I mean, if we're trying to figure out why Democrats appear to be more unified, although as soon as I say that, I, I have Democrat colleagues that I served with who's, who don't think that's true. They do not think that they are more unified, but it certainly seems like they are. One difference is the liberal or left media rarely, if ever, criticizes Democratic leadership. Rarely, if ever. I mean, you think about it. Nancy Pelosi lost the House twice. She lost both impeachments um, and pretty overwhelming jury not guilty verdicts. She is uh, at least in part responsible for making sure that President Obama uh, didn't have the full Congress for six of his eight years. She's at least partly responsible for making sure Joe Biden didn't have the full Congress for two of his first four years which is to say she had the majority and she's lost it twice. And yet she's never criticized. I cannot think of a time when Rachel Maddow or the folks at CNN or liberal bloggers or left-linging podcast folks went after her. I, I can't think of a single time. Mm. And, and even when her members did try to fight with her, they got no traction in the media. I mean, if you think back, uh, the last time Nancy Pelosi ran for speaker, she had some people that didn't vote for her. Um, it was closer than I think she thought it was going to be. But the liberal media did not rally behind the people that were opposing her. Mm. That is not true on the conservative side. That is not true. Uh, whether you want to go back to John Boehner or Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or committee chairs in the House and the Senate, they are always criticized by conservative media personalities. I mean, you think back to last week, just think back to last week, one GOP member of the House on national television said McCarthy was bought and paid for by lobbyists. Now, to me, that's interesting since that same member voted for McCarthy two years ago. Mm. Another member called him a swamp creature, which is, again, interesting to me because that same member also voted for him two years ago. You know, one GOP member of the House has gone out of his way to say nice things about Democrat Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. He defended former Democrat Congresswoman Katie Hill, who was forced to resign because of, well, I'm going to let you look up what she resigned over. I'm, it's not appropriate to discuss in a family podcast, but you can look it up. He defended her. He even defended the head of the Democratic Progressive Caucus, a member named Pramila Jayapal, and yet he routinely attacks Republicans. Oh, <laughs> Republicans talk about transparency, and then apparently there's some secret three-page deal struck last week that I certainly hadn't seen, and I bet people listening hadn't seen it either. So. Republicans save their sharpest knives for one another. I, I'm not sure why that is, but I am sure that it is.
Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Alec, for your question. Our next question is from Anthony, and he writes, you wondered why all the GOP voted for McCarthy two years ago, but had difficulty being unanimous this time. Could it be that with the Democrats in the majority last time, a unified GOP opposition was more important than individual policy differences and self-interest? Just a thought, he says. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that, that's as good an explanation as any. And of course, what Anthony is making reference to is two years ago, very same for the House, um, Kevin McCarthy got every single solitary Republican vote for speaker. Mm. Um, and so what he's making reference to is I, I have mused aloud what happened in those two years um, to, to go from getting all of them uh, to losing at one point 20 of them. Some of them were brand new members. In fairness, they did not vote two years ago. They weren't in the House, but not that many. Being in the minority is unified. There's no doubt about that. Um, you don't have to do anything other than oppose, um, and you're not going to win in the House. It's not like the Senate where one senator has power or even a large block and the minority has power. That's not the way the House operates. So you're free to be unified in saying no to everything. It's a little different when you have to come up with your ideas or get people to say yes. I think my, I guess my point was, you know, contrasting two years ago with last week, if you lack character, if you are, as one Republican said, a swamp creature, if you are, as one Republican said, a wholly owned subsidiary of lobbyists, uh, then you're unfit to lead, whether that's in the minority or the majority. That was my point. Um, yes, of course, there's a difference being, I mean, the expectations are very different when you're in the minority versus the majority, but character should not be different. Mm -hmm. So if you're unfit to lead a group of 200 and let's say 15, two years ago, how all of a sudden are you fit to lead a group of 222 from a character standpoint? Nothing is expected of you when you're in the minority. I mean, it, it's easy. You just show up, you vote no. Um, you know, although interestingly enough, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but we did hear a couple of Republicans last week blame McCarthy for the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that was passed by the Senate. I heard a couple of Republicans blame him for that. McCarthy had nothing to do with whether or not that bill comes to the floor of the House. He, he is powerless to stop it. He didn't vote for the bill. He whipped his colleagues to oppose the bill. There is no filibuster in the House, so he has no power to stop it. And yet some members, a couple, I guess took advantage of the fact that the public Maybe he doesn't all know that. And so they blamed him for a bill that Pelosi brought to the floor that he was powerless to stop, and he voted against, and he publicly criticized and encouraged all Republicans to vote against. And almost all Republicans did vote against it. I think nine supported it. Seven of the nine were not coming back in January. So they were they, – that may, may have been one of the last votes they ever cast. So how are you going to – discipline members who are on their way out the door and vote in a way that you don't want them to vote. 
Mm-hmm. So, look, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but you can't do anything in the House without 218 votes. Nothing. You cannot do anything. You can't even adjourn without 218 votes. Unity is important if you want to pass things. Uh, unity is not that important um, it, when your number one objective is to be on television. Dissension, disunity, fighting, that gets you on television. Unity does not. So when I hear members, and I heard one in particular last week talk about unifying the Republican conference, mm-hmm. <laughs> unifying the Republican conference, and her idea of unity was to call the guy that got 90% of the vote a swamp creature. So I just am thankful that I got to watch it and didn't have to be there and live it. You're right, Trey. Well, thank you so much for answering that question. And thank you, Anthony. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all star panel and much more. Available now at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next question is from Christopher and it's a little bit different. He writes, is there any way our country could require public service as part of the high school curriculum and perhaps require it for diplomas? Uh, I love your point, Christopher. I'm not sure Congress um, will be getting involved in setting the graduation requirements for Mm. high school students. I mean, that's a that's a state and local matter. Your broader point, however, of service is a great one. And Congress could require some form of public service uh, for a year, for six months, for two years. You know, Terry and I went to Israel this past summer, and we saw all of these Israeli young people who are required to serve in the military. Mm. Um, It's a requirement. Uh, Service is good. It connects us to others. It allows us to see the need that exists in our community or state or country. It causes us to focus on things outside of ourselves. Service is great. I wish more people did it. Congress can require it, I think, but probably not as a condition of graduation. Um, But I'm, as always, open to being um, persuaded that constitutionally I am wrong about that. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that beautiful question. Our next question is from Nick in Idaho. He writes, the Idaho murder suspect is due back to court for a status hearing on Thursday, January 12th. Will you comment on what could occur prior to the status hearing regarding any discussions that may occur between the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney and the suspect? Uh, sure. There'll be no conversations between the prosecutor and the defendant. Once you have counsel, once you have a lawyer, the prosecution and the cops um, have to go through that lawyer. Uh, they can't talk to you anymore. There may be like some really, really technical exceptions to that. But as a broad general proposition, once uh, counsel has attached, once you have a lawyer, the cops and the prosecutors have to go through that lawyer. Um, And quite candidly, there's no reason to talk. Um, Well, very, very infrequently is there reason to talk. Sometimes if you suspect a defendant has committed other murders um, or if or if you think others were involved, then you may want to have a conversation with the defendant. You may want to say, you know, but again, you got to get permission from the lawyer if he or she has already retained counsel. If it's like a mass killer, a serial killer, and you want to see if there are other bodies somewhere so you can 
provide you know some modicum of closure, although that's not that never happens. If you want to get some answers for other families, you may want to have a conversation. If you think others were involved, you may want to have another conversation. But the main reason I don't think these conversations are going to take place is the investigation isn't over. I, I am 100% confident the cops and the prosecutors are pursuing other evidentiary leads. So what conversations will take place? Prosecutors have a legal obligation to provide what is called discovery to the defense counsel. All the evidence they have, good, bad, or indifferent, anything that tends to make Koberger guilty and anything that tends to make him appear not guilty must be turned over to the defense. And there's really no reason to talk until you have done so. Because defense attorneys, you know, they're not going to just like take your word for it that you have a good case. They want to see what you have. And what you have may or may not be what's been in the newspaper. So most defense attorneys, there's really no reason to talk to the prosecutor other than about scheduling matters or, you know, the most dominant question you're going to get at this point is when is the discovery going to be made available? Now, sometimes when the evidence is overwhelming, sometimes, but that requires that you have all the evidence, you have all the discovery. Um, and let me stop right there. Let's assume that you don't have all the evidence. Let's assume you don't have all of what we call discovery and you go to the prosecution and say, my guy would like to plead guilty. Well, in about two years, you're going to find yourself in court mm. on a uh, allegation that you provided ineffective assistance of counsel because you didn't even get all the evidence before you offered up your client in a guilty plea. And you're going to have to explain why it wasn't important enough to you to wait on your expert to review the DNA or for the last couple of witnesses to be interviewed. So you have to wait until everything's done to really have a conversation. Not in this case, but maybe in another case, if the facts aren't good from a prosecution standpoint, you may want to have a conversation about pleading to manslaughter or murder in the second degree rather than murder. We don't have murder like first, second, and third degree in South Carolina, or we didn't back when I did them. We just had murder and manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. But sometimes they'll come to you and say, my guy will plead to voluntary manslaughter, but you wouldn't do that unless the, the facts weren't that good from a prosecutorial standpoint. You may, you may want to, in a death penalty case, go and say, look, my guy will plead guilty to murder, um, but you got to take death off the table. But it's just too early for any of those conversations. Um, he's been arrested. I don't think he's even been indicted yet. Um, I mean, the last articles I read, uh, he had not been indicted. So you got to be indicted, which means going before a grand jury. They're in the really, really, really early stages of this. And the discussions right now between prosecutors and defense attorneys, if there are any discussions at all, they will be about scheduling and about when the discovery will be available. Um, perhaps there's a conversation about scheduling a mental, uh, a mental evaluation, but just keep in mind, defense attorneys don't have to tell prosecutors anything, nothing. And prosecutors have to tell defense attorneys almost everything. So <laughs> this is not like a, like a free flow of information both ways. Mm. Defense attorneys don't have to tell prosecutors anything, nothing, 
there are lots of surprises in court because they hadn't told you jack prosecutors have to tell the defense attorney everything well thank you so much trey our last questions from shannon and she writes will you have any virtual book events for your new book yes i think yes i think mm -hmm. so mary links would i think knows the answer to that question probably better than i do i think i think there are you're right um and we'll make sure that you know about these and thank you for asking uh, I know for sure I'm going to do some in-person events, and and that's right. I've got some virtual ones planned also. The book comes out um, either January 23rd or 24th. Mary Langston would know that. I think it's the 23rd, but I could be wrong about that. It's, one day it's or the a Tuesday, other. so whichever one's a Tuesday. All right, well, that's the 24th. So I, I promise I did write the book, even though I don't know when it comes out. <laughs> I don't know whether I have any virtual events. That's I, I, okay. I, Here's the part I can tell you about. I can tell you about the book because I wrote it. It is not about politics, but, but it is about, in part, the decision to run for office because I was, I mean, you stop and think about that. If, if you're contemplating running for political office in your life at any level, that's a major decision. Mm -hmm. So how do you make that decision? How do you weigh and balance the different competing factors? What's the worst thing that could happen if you run? What's the best thing that can happen if you run? And obviously, I, I left that job um, and ran for Congress. That's another decision, the decision to leave a job, the decision on what to leave that job for. And it's not just jobs, it's relationships, it's houses, it's parts of the country or parts of your state. So it, it is, it's, the book is not about politics. It's about making decisions. But some of the decisions, at least in my life, that were the most vexing um, were about political decisions I had to, um, I had to make. I, there's one part, you know, ironically enough, thinking about last week, uh, speaker's vote. There was another speaker's vote that actually played a role in my decision to leave. And there was, you know, we heard this phrase motion to vacate. Mm. Ironically enough, that played a role in my decision to leave Congress. So it's not, it doesn't matter whether you're leaving Congress or whether you're leaving a certain field of work or, you know, parting ways with someone you've been friends with for 10 years. At the root of all of this is a decision that we have made. So how do we make the best decisions and not to borrow too much from what's been in the headlines but you know obviously what happened on the floor of the house last week was in the headlines but so too was a quadruple homicide in idaho mm -hmm. and that was a reminder um of of why i on the one hand love being a prosecutor but also why i decided and needed to leave so there are times in life that we leave jobs that we love and yet it's the right decision. There are times in life that we stay in jobs that we don't love, and yet that too may be the right decision. So how do we make them? I mean, if life is about decisions, how do we make the very best ones? And how do we you know, balance logic with emotion? Who do we listen to? Who are our advisors? What are we looking for in our advisors? How do we tame fear? 
Now, what are we afraid of? And is it rational? Is it irrational? How do you define success? I mean, I think everybody would say, I want to lead a successful or significant life. Okay. How do you define that? People will say, you know, I mean, we talk about sports a lot on this show and every team loses, but there's a difference between losing and failing. Do we understand the difference between losing and failing? And how do we define those terms? So, um, yes, <laughs> there's a little bit of speaker drama in there. There's some courtroom stuff in there. But at its core, you don't have to be a politician or a prosecutor or care about any of that. You're going to make a decision in the next week or next month or next year. And if you want to be equipped to make the very best decision for your life, that's why I wrote the book. And um, it was therapeutic, but mainly I wrote it so people can avoid the mistakes that I made in life. Um, there's no reason for us to make the same mistakes. Everyone have a great week. We'll see you next week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.